Good morning and welcome to the Christian Life Center. Uh, we're so glad and thankful that you're here with us this morning. My name is Ben Dieterle and I get the opportunity to speak this morning and kind of open up our wonder series. And I'm so excited for this Christmas season yet, uh, to be honest, and we'll get to this in just a second. I'm a little bit stressed out because it was a late Thanksgiving and there just seems to be a lot to do. But we're so glad and thankful that you're here with us this morning. If this is maybe your first time or one of your first few times with us, uh, we would love to give you a free gift for being a part of our church uh, this morning. And that's basically a free t-shirt that if you are interested in, all we are asking for is if you would be willing to kind of self-identify, put your name and information on the back of the bulletin. And then as you head out this morning on the right-hand side, at the info center, there'll be somebody there that will give you that gift. They'll collect that information. We promise that we're not going to do anything crazy with it. We're not going to call you like every evening right as you sit down for dinner. That's not what we're looking to do. But just we are looking to build our community. And if there's ways that we can help you get connected, then we want to be able to do that. So if that is something that you would be interested in doing, I want to invite you to do that. Also, before I kind of jump into the message, uh, there's one particular area that I want to highlight for you, something that's happening tomorrow that we could really, really use your help with. Um, what has happened is that basically Lincoln University, which is the school that's just five minutes down the road from us, they have invited us for the second year to be part of their Christmas party celebration that they do for the entire campus. Last year, basically what they did was they, they called us a few days before and they said, hey, would you be willing to give hot chocolate and hot apple cider? And we were going, sure, how about we bring cookies as well? And we came to you, the church, and said, we need to bring a ton of cookies. And boy, did you guys respond. You guys brought probably between five to 7,000 cookies for this event, and the students absolutely, absolutely loved every second of it. I, I don't think this is kind of uh, hyperbole when I say this, but every time that I think I've been on campus since then, I've had either a student or a faculty member or somebody either reference that event or say, hey, you're the cookie church. And I'm like, yes, we are the cookie church. Or just on some level, ask about it coming up again. And so they are doing that again tomorrow. It goes from about 4.30 till about 8 o'clock for them. And here comes the ask, okay? Because last year was so successful, because last year what students actually did, and because we had so many cookies, students took bags of cookies back to their dorms, and then they lived off those cookies, I'm told, for the next week of finals, Right? If you can remember what that process was like, yeah, you did the same thing. So here's kind of the ask. We need about 10,000 cookies by tomorrow at 3 p.m., all right? I think that we can do it because last year, like I said, you guys showed up. So if you would be willing to help with that, what we are looking for you, for you to do is to buy, to bake, to borrow, to steal, whatever it takes to bring that amount of cookies in by tomorrow at 3 p.m. I'll be leaving here with some volunteers at about 3.30 p.m. So if you can get them here to the church by 3, that would help us out immensely. I think that this is one of the greatest impacting events that we do specifically for Lincoln because not only do we get to give them cookies a simple, small, really not a big act, but something that says, hey, there's a group of crazy people that are right down the road that were willing to get 10,000 cookies and bring them to you. Not only does it show that we love them, that we care and we value them, but it also gives the volunteers that are there an opportunity to be able to talk to them, to get to know them a little bit. I feel like this event, probably more than any, I get the opportunity to be relational with. And, and I'm basing this all off of last year, so I'm excited again for this year. So if you would be willing to help us with cookies, 
cookies. Man, do we need cookies, all right? So 10,000 cookies is kind of the goal. Because last year we had such a great turnout, now we're looking to do that once again. So if you could help us out, that would be great. Also, if you're looking to help with that event, uh, if you go to the, the church sign-ups page at clcfamily.church slash sign-ups, uh, there's, a, the, there's a It's Cookie Time sign-up that you can sign up to help with one of those t- things. We're looking for about five people per hour to help us out with that. So if you can do that, that would be great. Also, it's another full week in the sense that on Friday we have uh, Oxford, uh, Oxford's first Friday coming up, as you heard about. So there's a ton of different events that you can get plugged into that we would love to have you be a part of as we get the opportunity to go into our community and really be the light and the love of Jesus Christ. And so we're excited for that. And uh, as we kind of jump into this message series, uh, I'm excited about this Christmas season. I think that Christmas is one of my favorite times of year because on some level, what I recognize is that the entire world on some level has to acknowledge the reason why we celebrate Christmas, right? The reason why we celebrate Christmas is because Christ came from heaven to earth as a child. And that is something that for me, I want to think about and remember every single day, every single month, not just in the Christmas season, but there's something about the Christmas season that we tend to think about that a little bit more than we do kind of in our normal day-to-day routine. It's almost like our routine gets broken up, and so we start to think and we start to consider. And I love videos like what we just saw because really I know a lot of these things and I hear a lot of these things, but what happens is that as quickly as I see them and I watch them and I hear these amazing facts of what God has done in creation, but then as quickly as I see them or hear them, I tend to forget about them as well. But when you can start to kind of see the picture of what God has done from the beginning of time all the way through, even till today, it's pretty marvelous that we get the opportunity to see God's plan of redemption. We get to marvel and to wonder at how this God of the universe chose to do this and why he chose to do that. And really in this series, what we're hoping for you this season is that you get the opportunity to slow down. And this is the challenge, at least for me, as I was just talking about. Like, the Christmas season, while it's one of my favorite seasons, it also tends to be, like, one of the most stressful times of the year. Does anybody else experience that, or is that just me? Like, there's so many different things to do. You think about all the events that are happening for school. You've got work parties. You've got church events that are happening. You've got all of these things that are coming to an end or starting, or people are celebrating. They're kind of trying to lean into the season. And what that means is that it seems like you go from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to event to event, or maybe it's not even events. It's just the fact that there's things in your own home that you're trying to do. You're excited about family coming in, so you're trying to get ready and prepare for that. You're excited to give your children presents, or you're excited to give your significant other uh, a present that they're looking for, and you're trying to find the right one, right? All of these things add up and add up. And I think what, ha- what can happen if we're not careful is that we can miss the entire point of Christmas. And so this season, what we're really hoping to do through this series and through just kind of our day-to-day lives is to really try and pause and reflect and to not miss the fact that Christ is the very reason why we celebrate Christmas. That is what we are hoping that through this series, that it's not just something that kind of is another series at church that we go to and then we forget about and then we move on, but it's one that makes us or allows us to pause 
and to think about all that God has done. And so I wonder what it would look like this year if we actually were able to accomplish that. I wonder what it would look like if we were actually able to slow down and to consider what it would be like for this beautiful, marvelous story that unfolds that we see even in the beginning of Genesis, how God had a plan to redeem his people and to be with us. And uh, what I want to do real quick, just kind of to, I guess, to illustrate my point, but to be honest, to have a little bit of fun, is uh, I want to test your useless Christmas trivia, okay? Is that all right? Anybody in here feel like you are the Christmas trivia master? Nobody. Or everybody's scared to raise their hand because they think that I'm about to pick them and pull them on stage. Yeah, I've got a couple head nods. That's not what's going to happen. Don't worry. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm basically going to show you a popular movie scene that has got the main character or main characters removed from that scene. And what I want you to do is see if you can identify what movie it is and then, if possible, identify what character in that movie it is. Okay? Does that make sense? You can just kind of talk amongst yourselves. You don't have to shout at it. I won't call anybody up on stage or make you say anything. I promise it'll be a lot of fun and it'll go real quick. So here we go. We're going to start with a pretty simple one, or at least I think it's pretty simple. So again, main character, movie scene, you have got to try and identify the movie and then also, if possible, the main character of that movie. As far as I know, this is the only movie that has a pink bunny suit in it, all right? Does everybody think you got it? I'm going to ask for hand raise, not because I'm calling on you, but you think you got it? Who here? All right, good. That's what I thought. I'm getting some good engagement. Yeah, so this is the Christmas story, and the name of the character is Ralphie Parker, right? You'll shoot your eye out, which at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, (laughs) happens. Like, to be honest, I couldn't understand the plot of the movie. Like, so it happened? I don't know, whatever. Uh, Here we go, next one. This one's a little bit more challenging. A little bit more challenging. I think I just heard somebody shout out the movie, but then also I need the character's name, and I'm going to say first and last, but this might be a trick question. Does anybody know what this one is? Who here is feeling confident like you know the movie? Nobody. Ooh, okay, maybe the... All right, we've got one in the back. I see one child's hand in the back. All right, so this movie is Elf. This is a Christmas classic. That's Will Ferrell, and it's Buddy the Elf. That is his full name. First, middle, I guess, and last name. Buddy the Elf, uh, I assume, because there is no last name in that. Here we go. Let's go to the next one. This one, this one you probably know. Yeah. No, you can't see it. Maybe if we can dim the lights just a little bit in the house, struggling to see just a little bit. It's a little bit hard because we've removed the main character's face, so obviously that's there. Does that help anybody? Can you see that? Yes, it is Christmas vacation, but what is the name of the person? It is Clark Griswold. Right, good. Here we go. I think I've got two more. Two more. This one's another one, or I've got three more. Sorry about that. This one, it is not Christmas unless you watch this movie, all right? That is the way that it is, and it has to be in black and white because it just has to be, all right? Although there is a version of it where it is in full color. I don't know where it came from, but there is a version somewhere. Everybody know what this, this classic is? This is It's a Wonderful Life. But what are the names? George Bailey. George Bailey, yep. That's one of three. Harry? Well, Harry's in the movie, but that's not Harry. Zuzu is in there. And then one more. What's the wife's name? 
Mary. Yes, that is right. So it's George Mary and Zuzu Bailey. Here we go. Another one. We're going to move through them pretty quick here. This one, kind of hard to see because it's pretty, pretty much a close-up that's been removed. So anybody know? Yeah, this is from the Grinch. What is the character's name? It is Cindy Lou Who from the movie The Grinch. A little bit hard to see that there, right? All right, and then this is, I believe, the last one. Um, I thought that this one might be a little bit challenging, but last night's group got it pretty quickly. Does anybody know? Home Alone. Okay, what's the character's name? Kevin McAllister. We've got a movie fan over here of, of that. That's right. So here is just kind of a, a fun example of what I'm talking about. Just like if you were to watch those movies without those main characters, really the movie wouldn't make sense, right? The same is true for us if we try and go through Christmas without really reflecting on the birth of Christ. We can kind of go through it and it, it makes sense and we can try and talk about Santa Claus and all of these, these you know, people from history, whether they're fake or, or real people, like we can work through all of that. But the reality is, is that without Christ in the center of Christmas, something is missing. And so that's kind of what we really want to talk about in this series is that we want you to reflect, we want you to think, we want you to marvel at the wonder of this story that the God of the universe stepped out of heaven into the earth that he created. And specifically this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at uh, this prophecy that's found in Isaiah. And in this prophecy, what you see is, is really something that in the New Testament is fulfilled and how that impacts our lives, not just during the Christmas season, but every single day of our lives. And I'm excited to share with you um, in that. And really, the passage that we're going to be looking at is found in Isaiah chapter 7. It's, it's Isaiah chapter 7, really 1 through 17 is kind of the main text of what we're going to be talking about today. I'm not going to read all of that because, to be honest, there is a ton of history that happens here. There is so much history here. In fact, I'll say that this is even a, a, kind of an audible from last night to this morning. As I tried to work through all the history, it was just a little bit too much that led to a little bit more questions. So I want to give you this scripture verse and say, hey, if you've got time, read it, look into it, study it, if that's something that you're interested in. But I want to try and give you a little bit of a setup of what's happening in the nation of Israel and in this specific book of Isaiah and then kind of talk through this prophecy that happened that's first and foremost for that time and for that season. But the second fulfillment of that is how it impacts the Christmas story and ultimately how it impacts every day of our lives. And so to kind of give you a little bit of background, and again, due to time, just kind of skimming through this, what I would say is I would lean into uh, our overtime podcast that we do on Tuesdays. If you have questions, if there's something that I, you don't feel like I explained very well, please email us, overtime at clcfamily.church, or write it on the back of your bulletin, drop it in the offering plate. But because of time, we're going to kind of quickly go. This. And what I guess my fear in that is that there'll be questions that we don't get to, but I would love to try and answer those questions for you on Tuesday. So I want to lean into that. So basically what we have is if you know anything of the history of Israel is that you have Jacob has 12 sons and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Well, thousands of years have passed from those tribes where it was one family to where these tribes are basically 12 different nations. And these nations are are kind of unified for the longest time. But then what happens is because there's a disagreement of who those tribes believe should be the next king, this is after David, this is after Solomon, it's then that there's a disagreement about who should be the king, the next king of Israel. There's actually a split that happens. You see this whole nation of Israel split to where we have the northern tribe, which is 10 tribes, and then you have the southern or the northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom. Basically, the southern kingdom is the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and then the northern tribe is the 10 other tribes that are there. These are then referred to as the northern tribe. The 10 are referred to as Israel, and the southern tribe is is referred to as Judah. Also, as we go through this passage, that northern tribe, the ten tribes, is also referred to as Ephraim because Ephraim was the largest tribe of those ten. So, this is kind of the backstory that sets up where we're at with Isaiah. And then, basically, as these, there's this disagreement, this split. Then there's civil war that starts to happen, is that the northern and southern tribes are at odds with one another, and then you see battle and fights where they're they're actually fighting against their tribe. They're fighting against their own family and they're, they're killing each other in certain battles that happen. Well, as we get to Isaiah, that is exactly what is happening. This northern kingdom, this ten, these 10 tribes here are actually going to war with the two southern tribes, the southern kingdom, because this northern tribe with one of its allies wants the southern kingdom to join them, but the southern kingdom refuses to do so. And so because of that, it's kind of like, well, if you're not for us, then you're against us. And so this northern ten tribes, this northern kingdom, with their ally, chooses to attack Judah. And for Judah, this is a pretty dire situation. Because they are so much smaller than these other tribes, and because with this this ally or this alliance, it was basically the northern tribes with a Syrian ally, because they were so much, they were vastly outnumbered. So as we look at the situation, as we get to Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah is a prophet that is called to speak to this southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, again, consists of Benjamin and Judah, and specifically the city of Judah, or Jerusalem. Sorry, I'm getting confused with all my J's and my names. This city of Jerusalem is kind of the, the main hub, if you will. It's where the king of that southern tribe lives. And basically, he is fearful because he hears about what is, what is going to take place. So he's nervous. He's anxious. And, and as you look through the, the prophet Isaiah, his entire book is really filled with, with this announcement, these two kind of announcements, one of judgment, of God's judgment that is coming because of the entire, I'll say Israel, but it's Israel and Judah, because of the disobedience that has happened in the land of Judah, because of their idolatry, because of their willfulness to turn away from God, that because of that, God was going to be sending judgment to him. So his prophecies are to the king, specifically to the leadership of Judah, and for the people to turn from their rebellious ways, or or that they would experience the judgment that was coming. But also Isaiah's prophecies are filled with continual hope that this this Jerusalem, this old Jerusalem would one day be replaced with a new Jerusalem. 
And this new Jerusalem would have a king and a ruler that would reign forever and ever. It would be a city that would be undefeatable. It would be a city that would reign and rule over all kingdoms. And this is, of course, a future futuristic prophecy that's talking about the kingdom that God would establish, that Jesus would establish. And so to give kind of a little bit of a backstory, that is where we find Isaiah in the middle of, where we see kind of the history of Israel and Judah, these northern and southern kingdoms. And there's a lot going on here. Even more so as we go through this, you'll probably see that there is more happening that will require more explanation. Even as you're looking through Isaiah chapter 7, there's like six different names for these really three groups of people. And what you need to remember is that King Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom. He was the king that lived in Jerusalem, and he was a king that was incredibly fearful about this attack that was about to, uh, that was about to take place. And Ahaz, it's interesting because Ahaz was actually a pretty evil king. Um, he was the first king, at least in, in Judah, that for a hundred years, he was the first king that chose to not follow the law and the decree of God, just was blatantly living in disregard to who God was and uh, worshiping idols and even sacrificed his son to one of those idols. And, and so I, Ahaz was this pretty bad king. But even in that, what you see is God's grace, his mercy, and his desire for Ahaz to turn from what he's doing and to begin to trust in God. And so we're going to kind of pick this story up in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 7. And this is through the prophet Isaiah, this is the word of God that is coming to Ahaz as he hears that there's this desire to kind of wipe out the city, to, to completely destroy the entire um, area and region of Judah, the entire two tribes, to wipe out Jerusalem. This is what God says through his prophet Isaiah. Again, Isaiah 7, starting in verse 7, this is what God says, it will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. He's starting to, to list the leaders here that are part of the, the opposing tribes or the opposing allies that are going to come against. He said, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom there, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remelah, Remelah's son. And this is what's interesting. It says, if you do not stand, again, God speaking to Ahaz, he says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And then this is pretty interesting. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz uh, through the prophet Isaiah. It says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And so to just kind of unpack what's even going on there is that God literally tells Ahab, Ahab, this wicked king, hey, that which you fear so much is not going to happen. What you're scared of, the annihilation of your city, and really what I would speculate is that really Ahaz was probably more concerned about himself than anything else in that, is that his kingdom, his people, what he wanted, his agenda in that would be removed. But God in his goodness and his grace and his mercy says this will not happen. But what does he ask Ahaz to do? He says to stand firm in your faith. 
Really, that's the only thing that Ahaz needs to do. Like, everything else isn't even being talked about at this point. Isaiah says, just stand firm in your faith. And if you can do that, basically good things will happen. But if you choose not to do that, then you will not stand at all. There's this incredible grace that God is showing King Ahaz there. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And amazingly, um, what we see is that through the prophet Isaiah, God actually talks about that northern kingdom, those 10 tribes. He talks about their annihilation, basically. He talks about how they would be completely destroyed. And what we see is that within, uh, I believe it's two to three years, it was about 722 BC, Israel actually falls to the Assyrian army. They were allied with the Syrian army, but the Assyrian army is part of the reason why they had that ally. And what happens is the Assyrian army comes in, overtakes them, and takes captive all of God's people. In fact, even that, there's a connection there. What happens is that Israel has fallen, they fall to Assyria, and then within 65 years, so before 669 BC, Assyria brought in people from other conquered nations to intermarry with a few remaining Israelites. The resulting mixed race was then called Samaritans, and the Jews for centuries would despise the Samaritans, which is where we see, even in the New Testament, there was a hatred towards Samaritans. And so this is kind of the history uh, that God speaks to Isaiah to say, hey, what you fear right now is eventually going to be annihilated. Within two years, two to three years, basically, that which you fear will be no more. And basically, stand in your faith and everything will go well. And, and, and what's so cool is that God says, hey, ask for a sign. Basically, God goes, hey, pick a card, any card, whatever you want. Like, ask for a sign, and I will give you a sign. And at first, it looks like Ahaz is actually being, like, really spiritual and going, no, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, which is what was actually told in Deuteronomy. Like, Deuteronomy says, don't put the Lord to the test. But the problem is, is that God is telling him, hey, to show and to prove to you that this prophecy is for real, what test would you like? So in this, what looks like this, this spiritual, like, nah, I don't need to do that, is actually Isaiah kind of turning, or Ahaz turning a cold shoulder to God going, I don't need a sign. In fact, Ahaz probably at this point, we're not sure exactly when it happened, but at this point, Ahaz has decided that he's going to send a delegation to Assyria, and he was going to ally with Assyria so that they wouldn't be destroyed. What's amazing, though, and what we see is, is through this verse, and some of these verses we won't be able to get to, is the very thing that Ahaz is looking to for safety and for comfort is the very thing that ultimately leads to Judah's demise. The very kingdom that he looks to for hope and for saving Assyria is the same kingdom that as they save them from this specific conflict and as they aren't defeated and destroyed, Ultimately, what happens is as they start to pay homage, they are really plundered of all of their, their wealth. There's the gold taken from the temple. There's all of these things that happen, and it really starts to deteriorate, or it starts to crumble kind of the, the foundation of that southern kingdom there. And ultimately, what happens is that a, a new kingdom rises up, the Babylonian kingdom that overtakes the Assyrian kingdom. And because of what happened for hundreds of years with that Assyrian empire, because the Babylonians are so strong and Assyria had basically weakened those southern tribes, then Babylon kind of swiftly comes in in 586 BC and completely destroys the southern kingdom. But that's kind of a future that, that's kind of looking towards what is happening. But, but as we look at this, 
Ahaz can pick any sign that he chooses to, but he chooses not to. And so this is where we kind of get into the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14. 13 and 14 says this. It says, Then Isaiah, hearing Ahaz choosing not to actually have a sign, to not choose something, this is what Isaiah says. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, because again, Ahaz was actually in the lineage in the line of King David. You house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? And verse 14, this is kind of really the main text of what I want to look at today and continue on. It says this. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And ultimately, what we're going to be looking at is that the second kind of uh, unfolding or the second fulfillment of this prophecy is actually when we see Christ born hundreds of years later. It's 700 years later that we see Christ show up on scene, born of a virgin Mary, into a stable, and he comes to be our Emmanuel. Now, there, there, there was some immediate implications and, uh, and some prophecy that happened, but really, I, I don't want to proof text, but also what we're doing is we're looking at kind of the second half of this fulfillment of prophecy, and we're talking about how that impacts us even today. But if you were to study kind of that first fulfillment of it, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that are happening in that, that there was kind of an immediate or within two years or three years, this fulfillment that would happen and take place there. And that's where you see 15 through 17, which I'll just read quickly. It says, he will be eating curds, and this is specifically uh, for that first part of the prophecy. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. And then 17, and this is where we even see that God is warning that Assyria would actually be their demise. He said, the Lord will bring on you and the people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. Again, referencing that split, he will bring the king of Assyria. And so it's interesting and amazing to me that as as Isaiah is kind of speaking these words to Ahaz. Ahaz is not looking to God to be his hope. He's looking and trusting in his own plans, in his own schemes, in his own thoughts of going, okay, I'm going to align myself with the the greater power here, and that is Assyria. But ultimately, again, what was his maybe best scheme or best plan is ultimately what leads to his demise. Ultimately, what leads to he and his kingdom's demise. And, And this, verse 14 Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will call him Emmanuel, is, is the first prophecy in Isaiah of the coming Messiah. In Isaiah alone, there's 22 different prophecies that the Messiah, that when Jesus was born, he actually fulfilled. If you go from the beginning of, of Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, there's over 300 different prophecies that talk about this coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, where he would be born, what situation kind of he would experience as he goes through life. There's 300 different prophecies that talk about this coming king, this Emmanuel. And it's interesting, as you're going through this, the odds of somebody actually fulfilling all of those prophecies is pretty much unheard of. In fact, as I was kind of going through this and the studying that I was doing, uh, I read something that said, mathematically, the odds of someone fulfilling eight prophecies are virtually incomprehensible. 
Just eight. There's 300 in the entire Old Testament. Just filling eight of those are virtually incomprehensible. And here's this uh, illustration that I found. It said, if we were to fill the entire state of Texas with 100 trillion silver dollars, first of all, I've never even seen a silver dollar, but I would really like to see 100 trillion silver dollars. I'd like to see them in my bank account. But anyway, it says, if we were to fill the entire state of Texas with 100 trillion silver dollars, that would make the entire state about two feet deep in coins. So the entire state of Texas, two feet deep in coins. Then we mark only one coin. Next, we stir up the state full of coins so they are thoroughly mixed and random. The marked coin could be anywhere in the state in the two feet deep coins. Finally, we blindfold a man and let him travel the entire state to choose one random coin. What would the odds of him finding the marked coin in one try? What would be the odds of him finding that one marked coin? Have you ever been to Texas? Everything's big in Texas. It's massive. The entire state, two feet deep, full of these, these silver coins. There's one coin. Blindfold the guy. Have him go walk the state however long he needs to. Pick up one coin, and that be the marked coin. That is absurd. And that is just eight of those prophecies. He would have the same chance that the prophets had for those eight prophecies being fulfilled, which is virtually no chance. But what was only eight of the over 300 prophecies, that is only eight of the 300 prophecies, figuring the odds of fulfilling all 300 biblical prophecies is ridiculously astronomical. And for me, as I look at that, as I understand that, the way that I do, really the only explainable explanation for me is that the God of the world had a plan in place that he would send his son that would come into this world as a child and that he would suffer and die one of the most grueling deaths ever. But that was the plan from the beginning of time. And it was spoken about from Genesis, through the prophets, through all of the Old Testament, we see that plan. And as Jesus shows up, that is the only way that it makes sense for 300 prophecies to actually be fulfilled, is because there was someone, a.k.a. the God of the universe, that had a plan in place for all of those prophecies to be fulfilled. And really, this is kind of the, the main point of what I want you to hear today, is that Christ came to be our Emmanuel. Again, looking at that second fulfillment of this prophecy found in Isaiah, Christ came to be our Emmanuel. And if you go to uh, Isaiah 7, and I think it's the last scripture slide that I have, it's Isaiah seven fourteen, and then it's also Matthew one twenty three. In Matthew, it's re-quoting what is said in Isaiah, and it says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you hear nothing else from today, this is what I want you to remember, that Christ came to be our Emmanuel. Our Emmanuel, meaning he is God with us. And that is a name of God that just doesn't just sit with us for the Christmas story, but in March and in April and in May and all of the highs and all of the lows that you experience, Christ revealed himself in his name as Emmanuel. Meaning that that is part of the character, the very nature of who God is, is that he is with us. That is why he came to this earth. And, and it's amazing to me, it's astonishing to think that God would choose to do that, right? Like, I, I think that this is a name of God that I get excited about because what it means is that I have hope. Even if my situation is hopeless, I have a God who is with me. And so because I am not alone, then I can stand and face whatever challenges come my way. 
And so as we look at this, I want to tease this out just a little bit, what that would have been like, like the God of creation stepping on this earth as a child, right? Like there was a few steps that happened in between there, but Jesus is basically with the Trinity. He's kind of there at creation. He's going, okay, let's create earth. Wow, that's pretty cool. That looks good. All right, now let's hang universes and make a aardvark and we're going to put a mountain here and let's call this a palm tree or I don't know how it looked, but I imagine that God is doing that and then poof, I'm a baby. Like he goes from this extreme to What? A baby? Like, he went from creation to diapers. I would not sign up for that. I I just don't think I would. Like, I just could not sign up for that. Again, a few steps in there. But uh, again, just to tease this out a little bit more. He went from the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty to, what is that smell? Right? Like, you have never been to a good smelling petting zoo. Never in your life have you done that. Jesus shows up in a petting zoo. He shows up in a stable. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty to poof. Wow, that's a unique smell. (laughs) Like this is what God did. He stepped out of his throne room. He laid aside his crown. He laid aside his glory and his majesty to be one of us. Man, if if that just doesn't get you fired up, I heard a pastor say this in New York once, if that doesn't get you fired up, your wood is wet. Like, that's just something that is insane to me that the God of the universe would step out of his throne room into human flesh. Uh, I use this example uh, quite a few times in youth ministry. You might have even heard me say this on stage, but as I was growing up, I really enjoyed playing with Legos, right? Like they were super awesome. You could build really cool stuff. My brother by far was like the master creator in my home. And I was always amazed at everything that he created. And I would always like look at it and play with it. It was always when he wasn't around because otherwise he would yell at me. He was older. So I would like look at it and play with it. But then what would happen is I would like break it. And I'm like, oh man, I can fix that. And then I would go to fix it, but I actually would break it more. And then I would break it more as I was trying to fix it. And and like, it would be just this giant, like rubble pile. And he'd be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm fixing it. And he never believed me for some reason. But I have never once in all the years of creating things and enjoying and having fun with Legos, never once have I gone, hmm, you know what? It'd be really cool if I lived in Lego world. Now I'm not trying to compare God to me creating Legos. Like I think God's a lot better creator and designer than I am. But I wonder if it was like that for God. As Jesus is, is there, like he's at creation, he creates this world. Like the God that is invisible now becomes visible. The God that existed before time, like has no concept, doesn't care about time. He was, he is, he always will be. Like God always has been, all of a sudden subjects himself to time zones to weariness, to being tired, to being hungry, like to get exhausted, to feel the emotions that we feel. If I could have one superpower in the world, do you know what it would be? It would be that I would never need to sleep. Because then think about how awesome that would be. You could do anything you wanted. Like if you didn't have to like recharge, you could just have the energy that you needed to do stuff. And here's the catch. I want everybody else to sleep. I just want to be able to not sleep so that I can get done everything else. And then when it's like time to hang out, I'm like, yeah, I've got nothing to do. I could do my full-time work like during the evening while everybody else sleeps. And then I could just do whatever I wanted. 
But God subjected himself to everything that we experience. Man, I don't think I would sign up for that. I wouldn't be interested in that. By stepping out of heaven into his creation, God clothed himself in the flesh. God was creating a way to be with us because he is our Emmanuel. He, he is with us forever because he identified that that is his character, that is his nature, and those are his attributes, that he is with us. Whenever God revealed a name of his in the Old Testament or even as Jesus, you see the names of Jesus, it reveals part of his character and his nature, and he cannot go against his nature. He cannot go against his nature. So as he reveals that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, he takes what is a title and makes it a name. And that is who he is. He is not a distant or far off God, but one that is intimately close with his children. It is his nature because he is Emmanuel with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. I'm not sure why my intonation was weird like that. I wrote this in my notes. I said, in a season that brings either immense joy or or heartache, God is always with us. For those of you that have struggled or who will struggle or who are struggling, this holiday season there is hope because God is with us. In the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, my prayer is that you would have a renewed sense of joy because you are not alone. You are not alone. Emmanuel chose hundreds of years ago before the before the start of the world the plan was laid out that God would be with you that that is who he would be God chose to be in a relationship with you and that's why he came he doesn't remove the difficulty but he can bring comfort knowing that it's there I said don't be like King Ahaz and put your trust in the plans and the schemes that you have over God's plans Stand firm in your faith because the fear is that if you don't stand firm in your faith, then you won't stand at all. And your choices can lead to your destruction. This Christmas season, I want you to slow down and to marvel at the wonder that God foretold his coming as our Emmanuel. That from the beginning of time, God's plan of rescue involved him being with us through everything that we go through. And we see this through history, right? As you go through the history of Israel, as you see it from Genesis, you see that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. He was with them. As you continue that story, as you you continue talking about it, God led the Israelites by a pillar of fire and a cloud of, of smoke like he was with Israel. He encamped in the middle of the Israelite assembly in the wilderness while they were there, while they were wandering. He resided in the temple and in the Ark of the Covenant, showing that he was the true God that was with Israel. He spoke through the numerous prophets, using uh, or urging the people to turn away from their rebellious ways. And ultimately what God would do is he would come to earth as fully God and fully man, paying the price for our rebellion and sin. Why? Because he wanted to be with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And today he wants to dwell within us as well. He wants to guide us and lead us because he still, he was, he is, and he forever will be our Emmanuel, God with us. When Christ came to earth, he knew that he would be bruised and bound, yet he fully immersed himself into the very same world that he cursed. The very same world that he cursed. As everything happens in Genesis, He knows what he's doing, and yet he fully embraces that in the form of a man. He was willing to live with people that are fallen and faulted, all because he loved us and he desired to be in right relationship with us. He was, he is, and forever will be Emmanuel. 
He will always be God with us. And so this morning, as the worship team kind of comes out, as we get the opportunity to partake of communion, really the cross was the big picture for Christ. You can't separate the birth of Christ and his death on a cross because they're one in the same. They're, they're the same purpose. Because the birth of Christ was for the purpose of his death and his resurrection, only by dying as a man could Christ break us free from the power of sin. His birth was for his death and his death was for our lives. And so I'm going to invite Gary to come on up and, and to prepare us for communion.